Jesus Christ. First service of 2024. Amen. Praise God. It's good to be here. Good to uh, praise our God and put the devil on the run. That's what we're here to do. We're here out to start 2024 in a good way. We're going to put the devil on the run and keep him running. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Brother Kyle, good to see you. All right, let's sing, uh, Come and Dine, the Master Calleth. Come and Dine. Jesus has a table spread. Jesus has a table spread Where the saints of God are fed He invites His chosen people to come and dine And with His manna He does eat And supplies our empty Oh, His sweetness of the Jesus all the time Oh, come and dine The Master called Come and dine
song here he paid a debt he did not owe <clears throat> he paid a debt he did not owe I owed a debt I could not pay Yeah. 
this evening. I haven't got any written prayer requests handed in, but we just want to continue to remember the needs in our midst. And amen. God is faithful. Come, brother. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. If you have a need, why don't you just signify that before the Lord as we approach him this evening. Wonderful Heavenly Father, Lord, to think of the words of that song, you paid a debt that we could never pay. You paid a debt that you did not owe. Lord, in this life, people work their whole lives to pay off debt. But Lord, we didn't have to do any works. It was done for us to Calvary. All you said was look and live. Look unto Jesus and live. We were born in sin, not any fault of our own, but we looked to Calvary and our debt was paid. We looked to the atonement and the price was met. The price for every healing, the price for every promise, the price for every provision. Lord, every, every one's salvation, Lord, is completely and irrevocably paid for. One price paid the debt of all sin, oh God. How we thank you for that tonight. We come into 2024 just rejoicing, Lord, that we serve you. Our eyes are upon that which you have done for us. Lord, our labors for the kingdom, everything that we've tried to do during 2023, it's finished, Lord. We, we commit it to you. It's written in your, the book of your record, oh God. We pray the seeds that we sowed last year will bear much fruit. We pray, oh God, that you'll look at our labors and be pleased by them, oh God. And Lord, that they would be a sweet savor in your presence. And now as we approach this first service of 2024, oh Father, we just want to say we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for opening our eyes. We thank you, Lord, for shining your light upon our pathway. It brings us a peace. It brings us that shalom, oh God, that we might walk in your presence. And if there be one person here this evening that doesn't know you, Lord, may you reveal yourself to them. May they open their heart and accept your salvation in their lives. We commit this service to you and ask your anointing now upon not only the song service, but also the ministry of the word. May you be with Brother Jean Manassi as he comes to bring the word. We are expecting, Lord, tonight. We're not looking to a man or the intelligence of a man. Father, we're looking to you, the great I am, to reveal yourself in the present tense amongst your people in a way that you desired tonight, Lord. And we commit this service to you in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. have your seats tonight. Once again, I just want to welcome each and every one of you and those that have joined with us by the way of the internet. Pray that God will richly bless you. Looking forward to the service tonight. Brother Jean will be speaking. Amen. Can we sing, I have an anchor in my life? I'm just uh, so thankful for that anchor that is in our lives and uh, thinking about it before the service and how God has vindicated his word 
and reveal it in this end time age. It's the absolute that we hang on to. The Bible has been made a new book. Amen? Praise God. And that's our anchor. That's what we're going to need to hold us through 2024. We're going to hold on to that anchor. That anchor is going to hold on to us. Amen? When it seems like we can't hold on, he still holds on. Hallelujah. Glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's start with the chorus. I have an anchor in my life Holding to a solid rock A strong assurance that He gave me And I cannot be lost Let me score on the water of this life
invite our brother Jean to come. and Maybe we can all stand together as he comes. I'd like to sing together um, Daystar, Lily of the Valley. Put your... Lily of the Valley, let your sweet aroma fill my
Amen. Good evening. God bless you. Happy New Year. I can't believe I'm the first service of 2024. I was uh, talking to Brother Tom after Washington. I said, come on, you, you can't do this to me. And he said, does God care about time? <laughs> I said, I stand corrected. <laughs> well, let's maybe open our Bibles. Let's turn into the Word of God tonight. Thank you, musicians. Let's go into 1 John chapter 4. We'll be reading verse uh, 8 and 9. 1 John chapter 4, 8 and 9. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Let's also turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach thy holy word tonight with reverence, Lord. Father, we understand that the first time the word of God was mixed with some man ideas, Lord, it produced death. But we trust, Lord, that your word is life to us if we can take it as it is, Lord. We pray that you be the speaker tonight, Lord. Don't let any man's ideas or opinions be injected in your word. But Lord, I pray, Father, that you feed our souls. Father, that you quench our thirst by your word tonight, Lord. You know what we have need of, Lord, though this may be the first service of a new year, Father. As Brother Tom had said, there is no time with you, Lord. But I pray that somehow this will be a solid foundation, Lord for the remaining of the year for each one of us here tonight, that we can meet you in a special way, Lord. And each service afterwards will be building up upon this foundation tonight, that you would deal with us in 2024 as a church, Lord, in a special way. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We pray that you be with the speaker and the hearer, Lord. Give us understanding and revelation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have your seats. I was going to say I'm not going to belong tonight, but you probably won't believe me. So I'm not going to say that. Uh, I'd like to look into a subject tonight as I was praying, looking to the Lord. And forgive me, this just opened up for me early this morning. So I'm going to be doing something I've never done before. I'm used to, you know, spending time and weeks even studying. But we'll just trust the Lord as something for us tonight. And something will be said that will be a blessing to you. I'd like to take for a title, The Mechanics of Mercy. The Mechanics of Mercy. Uh, just be relaxed. You know me by now, so you know that I'd never preach anything you've never heard before. So it's, it's going to be things that you already know, but perhaps we can just uh, zero in on, on some aspects of the fundamentals of our Christian faith. We believe in mercy, don't we? We believe in redemption. We believe in Christ's work at Calvary. And we just want to look into how mercy is administered. 
the, the mechanics behind the administration of mercy. Now, the word mercy in the Old Testament, and I'm not going to be spending a lot of time talking about mercy specifically because that's not the subject. Whether we'll be looking at how mercy works and just in, in the back, so to speak. Uh, Brother Michael spoke on uh, the place of my mercy, I think, around uh, communion time. You should go back to that service. It was a masterpiece. If you want to hear about mercy and the place of mercy, that is a service for that. For that. And I was tremendously blessed by that. Now, in, in the Old Testament, the word mercy is rendered by many different words. There's kesed, which means goodness, kindness, uh, pity, or mercy. There's rakam, which means compassion, tender affection, or deep love. There is a konan, which means gracious, or to show pity, or to show favor. And in the New Testament, it's rendered by the word elihio in the Greek, which um, is a word that means compassionate, or to have mercy on, to help one that is afflicted. And there's several different variations of the same word in the New Testament, but it all boils down to this thought of, of expressing pity or favor or showing love or showing uh, a mercy or goodness or kindness. And all those things are attributes of mercy. God is good, God is kind, God is merciful, God is gracious. All of that has to do with mercy and redemption. Now, the word mercy itself comes from the Latin word mercy, which means pay in full. So the very thought of mercy conveys that there's something that was paid in full. There's a debt that was settled. Webster defines mercy as compassion or forbearance uh, shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power. So if there's somebody who offended someone that he's subject to, the person that has power over him also has power to show mercy. And uh, forbearance, it's, it's the refraining from the enforcement of something. So if there was a debt that needed to be paid, and, that, and then through forbearance, that debt can be omitted or forgiven. So it won't be enforced. But why are we really looking tonight into, into this subject? Why the mechanics of mercy? Why do we need an understanding of how mercy works? It's, it's because I found that though, and Brother Abraham talks about this as well, it, though we are in the covenant of grace, Amen? We're no longer under the law. Some still view their relationship with God through the eyes of the law. And that directly stems from a lack of understanding of mercy. And then we can say, well, we're in the New Testament. Jesus died for our sins. We're under grace, under the grace. But the nature of your relationship, the way you view God, the way you interact with God, the things you think about God, sometimes those things are still tainted through the lenses of the law. And that hinders you from having a fruitful walk with God. Uh, something like, like, like forgiveness, for example, that's a very, very basic thing. Well, you sin, and you say, Lord, forgive me. Then the Lord, according to his word, through the blood of Jesus Christ, indeed has forgiven you. But then a day after, or a week after, or a month after, you still remember the sin that you committed. And there's still a question, was I really forgiven? Well, why that question? Is there anything in the word of God that gives room for that question? See, the reason why there is that question is because in our view, in our interaction with God, somehow we're so tainted by the lessons of the law. And we still don't understand how a just God can forget and forgive something that I've done that broke his law. You are still under the law because the law is to have, it has to be kept. And then you are wondering, but I, I didn't keep the law. Though I believe I'm forgiven, there's still a question that arises within you. Well, am I really forgiven? 
And people that struggle with accepting the forgiveness of God is because they don't understand the mechanics of mercy. If you understood the mechanics of mercy, there will be no room for guilt after it's confessed. Brother Branham talks about the importance of understanding. He preached a message, God being misunderstood. He says, you know, misunderstanding gets us in a lot of trouble. Many times people say things that they repeat after somebody else where they misunderstood them. And again, you can understand that the Catholic Church had, had a, a very strong influence on Christianity throughout the church ages. And then there, there, there's sometimes a Catholic understanding of redemption and works of, of salvation that follows in through different denominations. And then people that have come out of denominations have inherited a little bit of that still. And then they come into the light of the message and then they struggle with the old way of thinking. Because there's so, something so ingrained in our religious DNA that has to do with works. And then, then they repeat what they've heard, what somebody else has said about God, and they misunderstand God. And Brother says, that will get you in trouble. He says, I believe it will be good for us if we just, well, wait till we understand what we're talking about. Don't you think so? He says, now to misunderstand is just not to say, well, I, I didn't hear what he said. But to see something done and misunderstand what that is. So misunderstanding mercy is... Seeing what God did at the cross and not understanding really what took place. You say, Brother Shumbi, this is, this is very simple, absolutely. Like I said, nothing that I'm going to uh, cover tonight is something that you've never heard, of, heard about. But perhaps through the simplicity of the word, it can become so crystal clear. So crystal clear, and I want to drive away the fear. And I want to drive away your reliance upon your own works. Look, everybody comes in the new year and have new year resolution. Like this year, I'm going to be more diligent than last year. I'm going to be more consecrated. I'm going to read more of my Bible. I'm going to get more into tapes. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to fast more. And all those things are good to have. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reason why you, you feel that way is that you, you look at your life last year and you see the works that you did. And then you're saying that I did not attain a certain level of works that God is pleased with. Therefore, I need to double down on my works. Isn't that a Catholic dogma? Isn't that looking at your relationship with God through the lenses of the law? That it's about how much you do X, Y, Z? It's not about that. When you peel back the layers of mercy, it's about one thing. The all-sufficient work of Calvary. So when you talk about the mechanics of, it's the way in which something works or is done. So we're speaking of the process by which mercy is administered. And I'll stumble on this definition by accident. I wasn't actually looking for this particular one here, mechanics. Mechanics is the area of mathematics and physics concerned with the relationship between force, matter, and motion. I thought that was very, very interesting. Forces applied to objects result in displacement or changes of an object's position. So it says a force is a power or an influence on an object. And then the, the matter is the object upon which the force is applied. So there's an object here, that's matter, and by my hand I apply a force, and that displaces the object. It moves it from where it was to a different point. And you can tell that, well, it used to be here, and now it's here. Why? Because there was a force that was applied to it. 
And that's what, that's what the mechanics, uh, mechanical engineering is all about, is understanding those three things. And it just happens to be that that's also redemption. Redemption is a projection of power, which is love. And love is projected upon you as matter, as an object. And the projection of love displaces you. It moves you from where you were to a different location. And then there's a point of reference. You can say, I used to be there, and now I'm here. What is that? Mechanics. That's what redemption is. Redemption is the projection of the love of God as a force upon you. And you are the recipient of that force. That force applied on you moves you. You used to be a sinner, now you're no longer a sinner. You used to be in a place of condemnation, and now you're in a place of innocence and righteousness. What moved you? What caused that displacement? It's a force. Redemption. Love. That's what it is. The mechanics of mercy. It's force, matter, and motion. So when we talk about redemption, we talk about how God projected his love as a force on you and how that force moved you from where you used to be to what you are now. Now, we, we don't, we, there's no need to talk about redemption and mercy unless there's judgment. Because mercy is only needed if there's judgment. Now, we know that God is a judge. Brad Abadam is very clear about that. So are the scriptures. If you have any question about that, read the Old Testament, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have no doubt that God is a judge. He does not mess around. Now, Brad Abadam says that God is a good God, but he's also a just God. And we know that all these attributes were in Christ or were in God or in Elohim. He's a just God. He's a good God. He's a kind God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's all those things. He's a faithful God. All those different attributes that we call upon the name of God. He's our righteousness. He's our banner. He's our protection. He's our justice. He's all those things. He's our avenger. All those attributes are in God. But God is infinite. That means that there, there isn't an attribute in God that is greater than another attribute. Nor is there an attribute in God that is smaller than another attribute. That means that all of God's attributes are equal. Brahman says in the message right here is that Elijah, he says, we hear so much today about God being a good God. I'm just going to lay a foundation for about 10 minutes. We hear so much today about God being a good God. He is, but he is a God of wrath too. He's a God of judgment, he's a God of justice, and his holiness requires justice. It behooves God to be just because he is holy. He judges and condemns the same as he blesses. And that's a powerful statement. He judges and condemns the same as he blesses. In other words, the blessings of God are not greater than the justice of God. If God is going to judge and condemn, the same amount, if you, want to, if you want to quantify it, the amount of justice God administers doesn't, is not diminished in favor of, say, goodness or grace. God is equally gracious as he is equally just. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying in the message, the token, it says he's a God of judgment. The Bible speaks he is. His wrath is fierce. God is a good God, but God is a God of judgment. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of anger. We'll stand before him when he's angered, the Bible says so. His, his very presence will be a consuming fire. That's right. That's in the message of condemnation by, predestination, by representation. 
So he, he, here he says again, we hear so much today about God being a good God. And that's true. He is a good God. We believe that. But he is also a God of judgment. In order to be good, he has to bring judgment to keep his law. There must be a penalty to law, or then the law is of non-effect. So if God is going to be good, then he needs to keep his law. See, if the administration of mercy was to dial down justice and dial up mercy, God wouldn't be God. Because he will lose his own integrity. And that's something that God cannot do. He cannot say, okay, I'm going to dial up my mercy and I'm going to dial down judgment. That doesn't work that way. That means that in him there's a shadow of, this, there's a shadow of turning. And the scripture tells us that there's no shadow of turning. There's no variation in God. God doesn't diminish any part of himself. So you need to understand that, therefore, how did I receive mercy? How? How was mercy administered to you? Bradham says, Jehovah God gets angry. I know he's a good God, but he's a God of judgment. And now we know he's a good God, but we don't want to depend too much on that. Remember, he's a God of justice too, because his holiness makes him justice. And his laws must be met, his requirements. In the message perfection, Bradham says that God requires perfection. It's a requirement. And if something comes to God other than perfection, it has to be judged. Because his holiness requires justice. There's no way about it. God is a good God. But if he's a good God, he's got to be a just God. He can't give us a commandment to do something, another, and we disobey it and expect to escape the judgment. He's also a God of wrath, a God of judgment. That's what makes him a good God. It's because he keeps his word. What makes God a good God is the ability to keep his word. Only God can satisfy both mercy and justice. When you read the, the carnal, the natural, intellectual definition of mercy, it's not really what God is all about. Because if Michael offended me, or Michael broke a law that I've said so clearly, right? And I told you, do not do this. And Michael trespasses that law. And I, I, as a human, I show him mercy. I compromise with my own law. That's the only way a human can show mercy is to compromise. It means I'm going to put aside my right to judge. And I'm going to give you mercy. Well, if God administered mercy the way we do, how is it still God? Because to be good means to be just. If God is good, that means he has to keep his word. That means that the soul that sinneth must die. That means that every law that's broken, there has to be a penalty. And that penalty must be enforced. Or else it's not just. How do we obtain mercy then? That's the question. Now, after the fall, and we're, obviously we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden here, but before we go back there, after the fall, you see that now God deals with his people. Before even the law comes in play here, there's different ways where God administers mercy to his people. And one of the first instances maybe we can talk about outside of Exodus or Genesis account in um, with Abel or with Adam and the, and the original sin, we can look into Noah, for example. So 
God was so angry with man and he repented because he had made man because of all the evil on the earth. And he, he was going to destroy the earth. So I'm going to wipe out the man. I'm going to wipe out all the earth and, and start. Noah, you're the one that I've chosen. You found grace in my sight. Now, because Noah found grace in the sight of God, Noah being a messenger, being a prophet, is also the administration of mercy. Because through Noah comes the instruction on how to escape the wrath of God, how to escape judgment. If God did not send Noah, God could have just come and flooded the entire earth and all souls would have perished. That would be justice and judgment. But the mercy of God is in the form of a prophet. And then the prophet comes and says, there's judgment coming, but here's a way to escape it. Because the prophetic office is the administration of mercy. Without a prophet, you do not know how to escape the wrath of God. Without a prophet, you don't know where to find your place of mercy. Without a prophet, you don't know how to find safety. And the whole human race would have been wiped out that time, but God, rich in mercy, would not let the innocent perish with the guilty, and he went away and made a provider way for the ones that wanted to come in. And that was the ark. Now, God clearly speaks to to, to uh, Noah, and he's very specific about how to build the ark, just like he is about the temple. God is explicitly specific about how he wants this to be built, because if you, if you vary from it an inch to the left or to the right, it's judgment. Why? Because God needs to maintain equality in his attributes. He has to be as equal in justice and mercy. So if you change just a tiny little bit, you get justice. If you want to get mercy, you have to dial mercy exactly the way God expects you to do it. Right. Noah, this is the type of wood you're going to use. These are the dimensions of it. This is how many rooms. Use this, use that, use the picture. Do, do all these things. And it has to be exactly the way I said so. Or else you get judgment. So, a prophet is a way of escaping the wrath of God. And that's the prophetic office. The prophetic office is mercy. It's an atonement office. And there's instances in the scriptures, actually, in Exodus in particular, where the wrath of God is made known through Moses, but also the way of escape comes through Moses. But God is displeased with the people. He tells Moses, I'm going to do this to the people, I'm going to do that. And then Moses pleads with God, and then Moses also gives the people, now do this. Take the brass serpent, raise him up. And look and live, you'll be saved. So the wrath is expressed, but so is mercy through a prophet. In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses was on the mountain and the people got tired of waiting for him, they made, they made a, a golden calf through Aaron, right? And Moses comes and pleads with God and pleads for God to spare the people. Why? Because that's mercy. Only a prophet could do that. The people didn't cry to God, Lord, forgive us, forgive us. They often, if you, read, if you read the Bible in Exodus and Numbers, they always cry to Moses. Why did you bring us out of here? Now there's no water to drink. Why? And they cried to Moses, and Moses goes to God. And now they're hungry. Moses, Moses, Moses. They always cried to Moses. And they were lucky. It's the grace of God to the people. There was a prophet in their midst. Because the prophet in their midst was a mediator. Or was the administration of mercy to them? Right. When they needed water, they cried to the prophet. When they needed food, they cried to the prophet. When God judged them and there was a plague to kill them, it was the prophet that came and told them what to do to escape the wrath of God. 
In Numbers chapter 16, one Korah and, and, and his people, about 250 of them rebel against Moses. They say, are, are you the only one that's holy in Israel? Are we not all of the tribe of Levi? Are we not all holy? But God came and killed 250 men with fire, burned them, killed them all. And it's so, the people of Israel were such a stubborn people. It says, and it came to pass that the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron. I'm reading from number 16. That they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud uh, covered it. And, uh, and the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle. So after, after God killed those 250 men, people started murmuring against Moses again. And they actually, since you read the Bible, it says, you've caused the people of God to die. Like, they're complaining that God killed those that were against Moses and Aaron. They're complaining about it. And now the glory of the Lord comes in the tabernacle, and Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, verse 45, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense, and made the atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Who told Moses what to do to stay the plague? Who told Moses how to stop the wrath of God? There's no account of it. The Bible doesn't say, and God told Moses, if you do this X, Y, Z, I will spare the people. As a matter of fact, Moses understands what God is saying here. That's the prophet. He understands what's about to take place. Aaron, quickly, the plague has begun. How did he know the plague has begun? He's with God. He's in the tabernacle. How does he know the plague has already begun in the camp? He's a prophet. See, people love to argue with a prophet. I would rather take the word of a prophet than dispute it. Here's the one who's standing before God, talking to God, and he knows what's taking place in the camp. He knows the plague has already begun. Who told him? Nobody. He's a prophet. He has access to things you and I don't have access to. And who told him what to do to stop the wrath of God? Nobody. God doesn't tell Moses, now, if you do this. No, Moses says, Aaron, get up quickly. This is what you need to do to stop the wrath of God. Why? Because the prophet is the administration of mercy. The prophet is mercy to a generation. When God sends a prophet in a day, it's the mercy of God. Many people want to say, well, what does it matter whether I should wear pants or not? Woo! Eric could have said that. Why the instance, Moses? Like, what are you talking about? Just do what he said, and you'll be fine. I don't need to know why he said it. I need to do what he says, because if he's a prophet, then what he says matters. A prophet has insight. That you and I don't have. Maybe one day when we get to heaven, you will understand why it was so crucial to dress as a woman ought to dress. And you thought that, oh, a pants don't make any difference. You don't know what a prophet knows. Do what he says. Period. And now it's, it's carrying out the instructions of, of Moses. And I love how the scripture says this, and the plague was stayed. Why? How powerful is that? Is that uh, the office of a prophet can step in, in the midst of the administration of judgment, and put an end to it. Whew. 
the office of the prophet can project such mercy that when mercy goes face to face with judgment, God is appeased because his justice meets his mercy. It's like minus one plus one, it's zero. That's powerful what the prophet represents. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, when the death angel is going to pass that night and kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Verse 23 tells us about that. So the Lord will pass the night, and there's clear instructions on what to do. Right? You should take a lamp without blemish. It has to be male. A lamp for each household. If the household is too small, then go with your neighbor. It's very specific. How to eat the lamp with the staff in your hand, with high up, all those different things. And God, through Moses once more, is administering mercy to the people. Now, it's very crucial to me and interestingly powerful that God didn't just orient his wrath to the Egyptians. Because he could just say that, tonight I'm going to pass and I'm going to kill all the Egyptian firstborn, period. He could have. But no, he's saying judgment is going to strike and judgment will apply to the Egyptians because you, I've given you a way of escape. See, the judgment that night is for all of Egypt. And if the Jews do not apply the blood, they also die. Why does God do that? Because God is not a respecter of person. In theory, this means that if an Egyptian was eavesdropping what Moses was saying, and also took a lamb with his family, and applied what the prophets say, he also would have been spared. Because God is not a respecter of people. If you come by his provider where you're safe, whether Jew or Egyptian, that's what he was saying. He could have just said, I'll kill all the firstborn of Egypt. But he said, no, this is how you're going to do it. Because if you don't apply the blood, if you don't apply the token, you will also die. So the wrath of God did not spare any Jew or Egyptian. The wrath of God only spared those who find mercy. Those who took the words of a prophet. Those who followed the office that administered mercy. It's a powerful principle. God is not a respect of people, of nations, of tribes, of nationality, of races. You come by his provider way, you're safe. So, in other words, if you came in contact with God that night, as the death angel came, and you had no blood, sudden death. In other words, direct contact with God outside of the blood is inappropriate. God doesn't like it. God doesn't accept it. God judges it. God puts an end to it. Nobody should come to God without the blood. He requires perfection. One more thing here, and I'm going to move on. Now, Abraham goes into uh, the land of Egypt, and he finds there Abimelech, who takes Sarah, his wife, because he says she's my sister. You know the story of what happened there. And Abraham... And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. And in the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands, have I done this? And God said unto him in a dream, yeah, I know. 
that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. For I've also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore, I suffered thee not to touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. And he goes further, and he shall pray for thee, and then thou shalt live. Who's wrong in this story? <laughs> Verse 17 says, So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bear children. For the Lord has fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. For taking Abraham's wife, judgment struck Abimelech's house. Even though what he did was innocent. God struck Abimelech, his wife, his servants, his household. You touched my prophet's wife. But now you go back to that office. Because that office is the only vessel, is the only conduit of my mercy to you. Only if Abraham prays for you, I will heal you. But I, I didn't do anything wrong. Only if my prophet prays for you, I will heal. But you know the integrity of my own? Only if my prophet prays for you, would I have mercy on you. Why? My prophet is mercy to you. Woo! But Lord, you know that I love you and I, and I was sincere in everything. Only if you take heed to the voice of my prophet. How many are going to hear that in judgment? But Lord, you know that I was sincere. I love you with all my heart, Lord. But did you take heed to what my prophet said? What? I thought those were just his opinion. He, he didn't say, that's the Lord. Woo! Did you take heed to what my prophet said? Only by my prophet will I administer mercy. That's the prophetic ministry. It's mercy to you. How we thank God for a prophet in these last days. And how we thank him from eyesight to see mercy being administered in these last days. For there is a judgment coming. And God is telling us by a prophet, this is how you escape it. Only through a prophet. Now, Moses go into the mountain. Mount Sinai. And there he talks with God and comes back to the people and tells the people what God said. If you do this, you'll be my people. If you do this, you do that. The people say, we will do what God said. And I love this. And Moses goes back to God and says, the Bible says, and he rehearsed what the people said back to God. It's like God heard what the people said. But it took a prophet to go back to God and say, this is what they said. Why? God is making it clear. I'm not going to deal with you directly because I'm going to kill you all. But through my prophet, in him, there's an attribute that's in me. I've sent him to you as an agent of my mercy. And he will speak on your behalf. And then he will speak on my behalf. And God tells Moses, sanctify the people. In three days, I'm going to descend on this mountain. And make sure there's barricades around the mountain. There's fences. Nobody should touch the mountain. Anybody that touches the mountain, kill him. Wife, male, female, animal, I don't care. Dead. Because when me, a holy God, I descend on this mountain, the whole mountain becomes holy. And how dare anybody touch something that's holy without the blood? Whew. How dare anyone touch something that I have made holy without the blood? I will kill them. Three days after they've sanctified themselves, they did not go with the wise, the Bible says, and I love how God is particular about that. He says, do not go unto your wives. In other words, like, I don't even want to hear about this original sin. When I come down this mountain, there better be nobody to walk with his wife. Stay away. Three days. Nobody. Pure. I'm coming down the mountain. 
And when God comes down on the mountain, the entire mountain is, is filled with fire, consumed with fire. God calls Moses on the mountain. <laughs> Moses goes to the mountain. And he leaves. Anybody else that touches the mountain should be put to death without the blood. Anybody, animal, male, female, dead. But Moses, Amen. you can come on the mountain because you, there's an administration of mercy. You are an office that represents one of my attributes. And you don't need the blood, Moses. <laughs> you come without the blood and I will spare you. And Moses goes, talks with God. And God tells him, now, when you go down, tell the people, don't touch anything. Moses says, don't worry about it. We put fences, they are not going to touch anything. God says, that's fine. But go, and then come back with Aaron. <laughs> now, not only Moses goes back on the mountain, this time he takes Aaron with him on the mountain. Aaron also survives. Do you know why? Because Aaron is with the prophet. Aaron is under the headship of a prophet. And then the mercy that spares a prophet spares Aaron. If Aaron ventured to go on the mountain by himself, he would have died. But God said, bring Aaron with you. As long as he's with you, he'll be fine. What is a prophet? Mercy. Now, let's go back to Let's go into the original scene here. About 17 minutes here left. Now, Adam and Eve, we know this is where the whole story of mercy starts. Because this is where the, the, the law of God is trespassed. God is very specific about what they should and shouldn't do. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God have said, you shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth, not, for God doth know that the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. Now, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant for the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise... She took out the fruit thereof, and she did eat, and gave also to her husband in her, and he did eat. Now, the devil is so subtle. He's crafty. And he knows how to reason, how to use logic. And now he comes and shifts Eve's focus away from keeping God's commandment. And then he turns the whole discussion. It's no longer about keeping the word of God, but it's about becoming wise. See how, how dangerous the devil is. He takes Eve and he says, well, the original discussion is about God said we shouldn't do it. And then he, he turns it around and says, but you know, if you do it, you'll be like God and wise. And now Eve is no longer thinking about whether I should keep the commandment or not. She's thinking about, do I want to become like God or not? Now, do you see his tactics? And now she's, the Bible says now she saw that the fruit was pleasant and could make one wise. In other words, she's no longer thinking about whether it's something she should do or not. She's thinking about, hey, wait a minute. Do I want to become more like God or not? Do I want to become wise or not? And the devil just shifted the playing field there. And that's the tactic that the devil often uses. And I, I will go into that shortly here. But the devil is very good at shifting our focus on the main thing. To bring you on the ground where he knows he can reason and overcome you. 
You stay where God tells you to stay. The devil is not going to, he's never going to come and fight you on the mess of what God said. He's going to move you away. He's going to move the goalpost a little bit here. Now on this ground, what are you standing on? Not on the word. So Eve gets caught up in this discussion and attention has been shifted by a crafty fool. Now we know that Eve, now she took of the fruit. What should happen according to the word of God? According to judgment, according to the law of God? Justice must be administered. But Abraham is very specific about this. He says the issue of sin has to be dealt. God must come and deal with the sin. He must come and apply judgment and inflict the punishment on the person that transgressed the law. Very specifically. So now the moment that Eve partook of the fruit, something incredible begins to take place. It's like when Eve takes the fruit, something in God rose up. And that's judgment. By her action, Eve activated an attribute of God that she had never experienced before. By going against the word of God, now she's about to know God in a way that she's never had to encounter before. Through her action, through her disobedience of the word of God, now there's something in God that rises up and is about to express something to Eve that she's never seen before. Now this is not different. This is not foreign to the angels. The angels have seen judgment before. When Lucifer sinned against Michael, the angels saw God come and judge the sin. The angels saw God take him out of heaven. The angels saw God take him out of, of, of all that he had, all his position. The angel knew that God was a judge. Eve never knew that. So the angels were like, uh-oh. What's going to happen here? We've seen this before. We know that this has been activated in God. What's about to take place? And I can perhaps imagine Satan or Lucifer, if you will, running quickly up to heaven and say, hey, she sinned. Because if you think about it, who is Lucifer really after? Eve or Adam? He's really after Adam. Because he wants to take over the earth. He wants to make that Eden his Eden. And the one person that's standing in his way is Adam. But he can't get to him. So he finds a way to get to him through Eve. Really, what he's trying to do is to displace Adam from all his rights so he can take over. So I can perhaps imagine him saying, Hey, even sin, what are you going to do about it? And as the judgment of God rises up, something else takes place. Adam is placed on the earth to be God on the earth. And God gave Adam, if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, he gave him dominion over all the beasts of the field, including the serpent. In other words, Adam has dominion on the serpent. And he could also administer judgment on the serpent. But he doesn't. Because Adam is more concerned with saving Eve than judging the serpent. He's not even thinking about the serpent. He's thinking about how do I save her? And I can perhaps imagine Adam looking at what has taken place. And something Adam said, whatever you say will happen. Say death and they'll both die right now. A man and a woman being inappropriate in the church of God. A man, you know what I'm talking about? A man or woman being inappropriate in the house of God. Say what it is. Whatever you say will happen. Blindness. They'll both be blind. Tuberculosis. Sickness. Dead. They'll both die. What are you going to do, Adam? Now, Eve has already partook of the fruit. She's already, she's already stepped out of eternity. She's already on her way to corruption. But there's a, there's a window where Adam is still in eternity. Because he has not seen yet. And now Adam is here in eternity. And now because of Eve, there's a chasm 
between Eve and Adam. And then Adam has to choose. What am I going to do? Now Adam weighs up the option. Either I stay in eternity and live in perfection forever. So he put that on one scale. And says, oh, I take Eve and step into time. And they put it on another scale. And Eve on the scale outweighed perfection and eternity. Think about it. When Adam considered all things, perfection and eternity or Eve and time. Eve on Adam's scale weighed more than eternity. Talk about projecting love. If it were you and me, God would certainly give him another wife if, 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 if he dies. But Adam is saying, I can either stay here in eternity and perhaps get another wife. Or I can step into time and forfeit all of this. And when he considered all his options, it was more important to him than eternity and perfection. And it's only when Adam weighs those options that he takes it to himself. In other words, he forsakes, he forfeits his life. He gives his life for her. It's only when Adam does that that God comes down in Eden. He comes down and he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? He's not looking for Eve. (laughs) Eve, she's going to get judged. But Adam, you did something. Adam, you took a page out of my book. Adam, you expressed something that's in me. And what you did for Eve, I have come down, Adam. And I'm going to do something for you. If Adam didn't partake of the sin, Eve would not have been spared. There will be no lamb. There will be no blood. There will be no mercy. It's because Adam partook of it as well. In other words, it's the projection of love from Adam to Eve. That in return, God projected love back to Adam and Eve. Woo! Now think about Eve being a recipient of a double favor of grace. Glory! That just came fresh. Because not only did Adam project love to her, which is the grace of God to Eve. Not only did Adam project agapo to her. Now here comes God. And he also projects love back to her. And she receives a double measure of grace, a double measure of mercy from Adam and from God. And it's only because Adam projected love in the first place that God also did it. Adam, there's, there's a space in time there where he still has access to the mind of God before he sins and he knows what needs to be done. Why? Because Adam is a prophet. Adam is a prophet. It's a prophetic office to Eve. And Adam knows what it's going to take to meet the requirements of the law. He knows what's about to take place. If she dies, if I don't do anything, she's gone forever. Now, the deed was still sinful. But the, the, the motivation, the objective, or the force behind it was divine. That was a gapo. That was perfect love. God comes and judges the sin. But God understands what motivated Adam to do that. It's the same love that's in me. And Adam is now foreshadowing something. In other words, Adam steps out of eternity. Out of the eternity comes a redeemer to Eve. Because he's the first Adam. He's He's the next king. Out of eternity, Adam steps out of eternity as a kinsman redeemer for Eve. Where did your kinsman redeemer cut off? 
out of eternity, but I'm going to say it's in the seals. Out of eternity, that lamb came out. Your kinsman redeemer. So where Eve's action and sin trigger judgment, Adam's action triggers mercy. And it's, it's because of Adam that the mercy of God comes and sheds the lamb and gives the lamb for the family. As the scripture says, one lamb for each family, right? Then Adam takes a... Brother Adam goes on to say, I don't have the quote here. Brother Adam goes on to say that God skinned an animal. And he, said, and he threw it beyond the bushes and he says, where is this? I just like to think that Adam took the skin and covered himself. And then Eve was trembling in fear and shaking. He took Eve's part and says, Eve, stand still. Stand still long enough so I can clothe you. Stand still so I can robe you. If you can only get Eve to stand still, then she can be clothed in the garment that God has provided for her mercy. There's a quote for that. What the prophet says, if I can only get this church to stand still long enough so I can clothe her in the garment of his word. Now, I'm going to go to a close soon here. God is love. But yet being love, he has to be just. So love does not mean a just, love does not mean just a thing that can be petted with and played with. Love is the justice of God. I had never read that quote before until today. Love is the justice of God. And people want to separate that. They say, well, God is love. So he forgives me for anything that I do. I can do whatever I want as long as I love him. He's love. Love is the justice of God. In other words, justice is about doing what's right. Love is the right thing to do. Projecting love in every single situation is always the right thing to do. No matter who has hurt you, no matter what they have done, no matter how much they've said about you, no matter how they ruin your reputation, love is justice. To project love is always the right thing to do. Now, when God administered mercy to Adam and Eve, now mercy doesn't mean that the punishment is no longer applied. That's not what mercy is. That's what you and I will call mercy, is that if I was to show mercy to somebody, I will no longer apply the judgment on them. That's not what mercy is. The mechanics of mercy with God doesn't work that way. Mercy is not withholding judgment. But mercy is a redirection of judgment. Mercy is the judgment goes from the guilty to the innocent. Mercy is the wrath of God that was supposed to be applied to Adam and Eve that now goes to a lamb. And then that lamb felt the entire wrath of God instead of Adam and Eve. That's what mercy is. Mercy means, it doesn't mean that a penalty has not been paid. It means that you're just, you're not the one to pay it. Mercy doesn't mean that a debt has been canceled as though it never existed. It means that somebody else paid that debt in full. That's what it means. Now, the only person who can pay the debt in full, the person who can forgive the debt can also pay it. Because if you, Michael, you owe me $5,000, and I say, you know what, Michael? Don't worry about it. Well, where is that $5,000 going to come? It came out of my account somewhere. It's my own income that makes up for that loss. Does it make sense? Like somebody, Michael doesn't pay that debt anymore. But it doesn't mean that that debt disappears. It means that my own wealth 
closes the gap left by his unpaid debt. When God forgives your debt, what does it mean? Somebody paid it for you. So then why, why are you still worrying about a sin that you've confessed? It's because you think it's still in your hands to make it right. But it's not. Somebody else, by the mechanics of mercy, that debt, that sin was placed on an innocent. Therefore, God can spare you because he did not spare his son. When God commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac, and Abraham said, the Lord and I shall return. And when God, he got there, God said, Abraham, I now know that you love me. Right? And then God provided a ram in the bush for Abraham. Did that lamb stay there or was it dead? That lamb was sacrificed. That lamb took on the sword or the knife that Isaac would have felt. That lamb was cut open the way Isaac would have been cut open. That lamb felt the burning flames of the fire that Isaac would have felt. So it's a substitution. So God takes what was supposed to be inflicted upon Isaac, he puts it upon a ram, a lamb. So now the blessing now of redemption are not imparted to us as a result of the strength of our faith in God. You see, Jean, you're splitting hair. I want to be very, very precise and very clear about this. The redemptive blessings of God only come to us as a result of our faith in the atonement work of Calvary. It's not about, oh, I, have, I have a strong faith in God, He can give me everything. It's about the faith that you have, that the one who died on the cross purchased all things for you. That's how you access redemption. Now, the devil is very, very intelligent, and he knows how to battle us, just like he did Eve. Remember, I told you, he shifts the argument. God doesn't heal me because my faith is so strong that I believe in God. He heals me on the basis that I have accepted the death of Christ as sufficient for my healing. Now, the devil is so cunning, he shifts our focus from faith in redemption to faith in God, period. And there's a difference. Now, the devil knows that if you can pretend that you have access to God by yourself, by the merits of your faith, then he can battle you on those bases because your faith is not good enough. It's like, oh, well, if, if you really had a strong faith, if you really believe in God, you could get all things. Why God is not answering your prayer? Well, like, if you're really a Christian, then why are you living that life? Why are you not perfect? Why are you making mistakes? Why did you say that thing? Why did you get angry? And now he's isolated you from the work of Calvary. And now you're standing in the debate with the devil without the blood. That's what the devil gets us in our mind. How do you think it battles us? It's to put Calvary aside. Because if it brings you on the ground where it's about you and God, then that's an inappropriate contact. Because God requires you, blood, God. The mechanics of mercy is to understand that between you and God, there is a sacred sacrifice that is all sufficient. And the devil tries so cunningly in our mind to make it about you and God without the blood. It's like, well, if you're a good Christian, how come your faith is not strong enough? If you're a good Christian, how come you don't read the Bible as often? It, then you say, yeah, I'm not a good Christian. 2024, New Year's resolution, become a better Christian. I need to do better this year. And he shifted the goalpost. 
another discussion you're having with him is about you and God outside of Calvary. Careful. It happens so quickly and so sadly that nobody even identifies it. When it happens in your mind, you don't even take a moment to say, wait a minute. They don't. The devil has you where he wants you to be because now he's making that discussion with you about something it should never be about. You should never stand on the, on the grounds in a debate with the devil outside of Calvary. Never. If the devil tries to move the post, you bring Calvary back in it. He said, well, you're not good enough. He says, absolutely. I'm not good enough, but he was good enough. Woo. And you say, but your faith is not strong enough. So you're, you're, do you think that you have enough faith for healing? He purchased my healing for me. The access I have, it's not because of how strong my faith is. It's about what he did and how easily I can accept the work of Calvary. That's the mechanics of mercy. You're going to go to hell because you've sinned. You know what? You would have been right if there wasn't a sacrifice. Absolutely. I would have gone to hell. Look what I did. You're absolutely right. Look what I did yesterday. Should a Christian do that? No. I should never do that as a Christian. You are right. But thank God. There is a lamb that I knew I could never do it on the basis of one merits. And I'm going to make it because of him. It's easy to step away from the merits of Christ and to stand on the merits of our own righteousness. Very easy. But what I'm saying is this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the Quran. I'm just going to go off my off his inspiration now. But what I'm saying is this. He says that many Christians will come and say that they think they're going to get healed on the basis of the salvation. That doesn't happen, he says. Next time I'll pull the quote for you. They think they can be saved, they can be healed on the basis of the salvation. They're like, well, I'm saved. Therefore, I have a right to healing. And they're standing on the basis of the salvation. Everyone says, that's not why you get healed. You get healed on the basis and the merits that Christ paid the price for your healing. When we come to God as sinners, it's easy to accept all that he gives us. I'm good for nothing, Lord. I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Then God saves you. And now you become a little bit of a Christian. All of a sudden, there's a tiny hint of pride. Where you think now, now you have access to all things by yourself. Because now you're a Christian. That's how the devil tries to get you. He tries to make Calvary a historical event. And then he wants to judge you how you live based on that event. But Calvary is not a historical event. Calvary is a reality. Calvary is the most sublime act where judgment and mercy met. Calvary is not only the greatest act of love. It's also the greatest act of judgment. Those two things have to coincide in the same time for God to be God. When God portrayed love by the sacrifice of the cross, he also portrayed perfect judgment. Perfect judgment and perfect love came together in a sacrifice. Because of that, you can be spared. If God wants to get a hold of you, because of something that you did when you're in Christ, is not God. That will mean that what Christ did was in vain. That will mean that what Christ did was not sufficient. God cannot require anything from you other than accepting what the blood of Christ provided. Amen. Yes. Amen. Once and for all, 
It's an all-sufficient sacrifice. It means it's Calvary plus nothing. That's what this means. You want to get healing? Calvary plus nothing. You want to get deliverance? Calvary plus nothing. You want God to provide for your needs? Calvary plus nothing. You want peace? Calvary plus nothing. If it takes more than Calvary, what did Christ suffer for? You say, Jean, this is very basic. Yes. This is the very fundamental of our faith. So go live a victorious 2024. Don't look at your works. This year, focus your attention on the redemptive work of the sacrifice of Calvary. Perfect sacrifice. Now, if God spares you with no punishment, he's not God. Now, if God punishes the innocent like Christ for something he didn't do and sends him to hell, he's not God. Because if Christ becomes sin for all humanity, he can't go to heaven. The Bible clearly says that his souls went, went to hell. That's where his souls went. That's where his souls ought to go because of sin. But now, how does God reconcile all this together? How does he meet judgment and mercy and still be fair to even his own son, Christ? See, the lamb that he, that he killed and slain in Genesis 3 did not have free will. The lamb had to die. And because of that, because it was animal life, that redemption or that work of atonement or that mercy was incomplete and imperfect. Throughout the Old Testament, bulls and goats, bulls and goats, heifer here, all bulls and goats, goat here, ram here, none of those blood that was shed was perfect. The atonement was always imperfect. That means that when Christ came on the scene, he was not only paying for the sins to come, he also had to back pay. Everything everybody ever did in the entire Old Testament from Adam to Calvary and from Calvary to the rapture. He had to cover it all because the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient. Sometimes you think about Calvary is from now on going forward. Calvary went all the way back, came back, all the way up in the future, came back and said, it is finished. I've cleared the past. I've cleared the future. It is finished. I paid it for, for, for Paul, for Irenaeus, for Columbus, for other church ages. But I've also back paid. When a payment is missed, you have to back pay your payment. You miss one month, you miss two months, you have to pay back the months that you missed. God had to go and back pay the payment of the blood for Daniel, for Ezekiel, for Joshua, for Moses. Moses struck the, the, the rock twice. Back pay, forgiven. That's what Calvary did. Now, unlike every other sacrifice, this one is perfect. Not only is it perfect now because it's human life, God's life, Zoe life, that can come back on you, but it's also a perfect sacrifice because it's conducted in perfect self-will. God never forced Christ to the cross. Think about it. The lamb had no choice had to die. The ram no choice had to die. The heifer no choice, the goat, the ram had to die. Christ has the option to live. That's what makes the sacrifice of Calvary the greatest thing ever. Because not only is the lamb himself perfect, but this lamb, like any other lamb, has free will. And then that lamb has to go of his own accord to make this a perfect transaction. Because if he's forced into it, he didn't want to do it. How is that perfect? Can't come back on you. 
right? If he's calling you to doing it, can come back on you. It has to be a willing sacrifice. But that sacrifice, that lamb also happens to be the only beloved son of God. Now is God about to lose his only begotten son? Now, God is just. God is love. God is mercy. And those all things have to exist together in perfect harmony without dialing down one, without dialing up the other. You know what he did? He prophesied through David, I will not suffer my holy one to see corruption, and I will not leave his soul in hell. And based on that promise, Christ subjected himself to the perfect will of the Father and laid down willingly his own life, knowing that God, by his promise, will also spare his life after he had paid the ultimate sacrifice. Because without that, Christ goes down to hell. Who brings him out? If there's no promise. But the Bible says he went to hell on that one promise. And now God, in his faithfulness, he has to keep his word. But by Christ's sin, or Christ has become sin, rather, he, he ought to stay there. I made a promise. I'm faithful. I will bring him out of it. I cannot diminish my attributes. I fulfill my law through judgment. And I fulfill my law of mercy through him. But I'm also a faithful God. And I keep my word. I'm a just God because I keep my word. I will bring him out of it. It's the willingness of Christ that makes that sacrifice perfect. It's him being the perfect lamb of God willingly saying, Lord, not my will, but yours. And now at the cross, Christ suffered what you and I would have suffered. But I'm in closing, but I'm going to say this. He says, every sin, every sickness, every ailment that was ever on the face of the earth was paid through Christ at the cross. In other words, when God began to judge Jesus Christ on the cross, but I'm saying he wasn't judging his son, but he was judging the sin that he had become. And when God is judging this, and when the wrath of God is going lashes after lashes, if you want to, if you want to picture it that way, this is for tuberculosis. This is for cancer. This is for leprosy. This is for sugar diabetes. This is for back pain. This is for arthritis. Every single sickness, God felt the wrath of God. Then, every sin, he said, this is for lust. This is for adultery. This is for fornication. This is for lying. This is for gossiping. This is for stealing. This is for murder. He felt everything such that there is no sin that he didn't pay for. And there's no sickness that he didn't pay for. So if all your ailment, all your ailment, and all your sin are paid in full, why can't you have what you need from God? When somebody paid the price in full. I'm trying to make you understand that what is taking place at Calvary, you can go away with perfect faith and perfect peace of mind and perfect confidence because the only way for me to worry about my salvation or healing is if Christ was not sufficient. Then you can worry. But if Christ was sufficient and he said so by saying it is finished, that means that I can just walk to God and say, Lord, I need healing. And I'm not coming to you because I think I have a tremendous amount of faith that I will walk faithfully. Don't make that mistake in prayer. 
Oh, you've seen me all these years. I've been faithful. I come to church half an hour. I pray. People gossip about me. I don't do anything about it. I work in the church. I labor so much. I do this. When are you going to have mercy on me? Now you've stepped out of Calvary. And you're making it about your accomplishment. And you're bringing petitions to God to convince him why it is a good idea to give you what you need. This is how you ought to pray. And how Brian always says, Lord... Not because I deserve anything. Not because I even have a tremendous amount of faith. But because I know that that man called Christ, when he died at Calvary, that sacrifice was all sufficient. And he took my wrath. He took my sickness. He took my illness. Why should I still suffer for something that's been paid in full? Was Christ not sufficient? Was he not sufficient? Because if he was, then I had to be spared. That's what Paul says. He says in the book of Romans, I don't know if I have that scripture somewhere, but in Romans chapter 8, he talks about if God did not spare his own son, then he can give us all things. Because he did not spare, he did not withhold his wrath on Jesus Christ. That means because Christ was not spared, you can be spared. I'm so thankful that I can present myself to God with full confidence that the sacrifice that stands between him and me is perfect. It's not about the merits of my faith. It's not about the merits of how good I am. It's not about how much I understand the message or how many times I listen to tapes. It's about the sufficient work. Right, but I'm saying all sufficient work of Calvary. Then you can just go to God and say, Lord, I thank you for Calvary. Can can you allow me to just read this quote and we're going to close? It's something that always... Bother me. But I want to say this. This is in a, in a prayer line, the message laid by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read this quickly. He says, If Jesus is the Son of God, which you believe that he is, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And here, you're here tonight seeking for help, no doubt, for that ear which it is. That was the ear. Yes, sir. Both of your ears? All right. This is a brother who had trouble hearing. He says, Now, I could not make you well. You understand that? I could not make you well. There's no way at all for me to help you or to make you well. The only thing that I could do would be to pray for you. You understand that, don't you? And you need Jesus as your Savior now. Now, isn't that right? Be honest with me. That's right. Isn't that right? You're not converted to Christ. Is this the same? It's the same spirit that told the woman at the well, go and get your husband, Jesus Christ, that know that you're in unconverted condition? Have you had some affair about a war or army or something like that? Have you been a soldier? Is that right? Do you believe me as this prophet? Come here. Will you accept Jesus as your Savior? Now, promise that you will, that you will not forsake him, that you will serve him the rest of your life from this night on. You now accept him as your Savior? Here's another thing that I noticed you're doing in a vision. That's up recently, of course, being a cinnamon, you do it. You smoke cigarettes. You must get away from that, see? Don't do that no more. You are to be a Christian now and walk with God. Almighty God, according to this man standing here with a trumpet in his ear, death in his ears, I pray for mercy for this man. He's now accepted you as his personal Savior. I pray, dear God, that you heal him and make him well. May the Spirit of God come upon the man and take the curse away from him, the curse of sin, the curse of sickness, heart of hearing, and make him a new creature in Christ Jesus. Almighty God, hear my prayer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hold it, all right? You hear me? Say amen, I love you. You're healed, brother. Your sins are gone. Go on your word rejoicing. Now, that's a very, very simple dialogue. 
I find it so weird in my own conception. How is it that it's so difficult for Christians, so-called Christians, who come to church, who hear the, the Bible, who hear the message? How is it so difficult for them to come to that place? Because this man is not weeping tears at the altar. Would you accept Jesus as your Savior? I would. Do you promise that you will serve him? I will. And in his heart, there's genuine faith in the redemptive work of Calvary. He's not coming on the basis of anything else than the fact that Christ died for him. And on the basis of accepting that, your sins are forgiven. And also he is healed. Now, Brother Wanham says this. He says that I find it strange that many times in the prayer line, he says, unbelievers and sinners will come and get healed. And Christians will come and miss it. Do you know why? I think Brian Tim and I were talking about this. It's something that's bothered me for a long time. Why, why, is that, why is that statement? Then you realize this, is that a Christian has too much theology in him. He knows too much. And he still thinks that there's something he must do. There's still a reliance on his Christianity. Am I a good enough Christian? Do I serve the Lord right? Do I pray enough? There's still too much in that in his mind that it's hard to simply accept the simplicity of what is offered to him. The sinner knows he's good for nothing. The sinner knows that. I'm not good for nothing. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm vile. I'm poor. I'm miserable. I deserve hell. But there's mercy for me. I will take it. Receives it. The Christian walks in here and says, well, well, God gave it to me. Do I deserve this? What if I've sinned? Maybe this is because I've done something wrong. Maybe I've unconfessed sin somewhere. Maybe this is a trial. Maybe, 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 maybe. You're not too much of theology. Take the simplicity of the word of God. It ought to be simple. Take what God said. Accept it. It's for you. Do you believe? I believe. Credit, credo. That's what he was. Do you believe in the Son of God? Yes, you're baptized. Do you believe? I believe. There's no complication to that. Or could it be? Maybe. Is this a service? I don't feel anything. Should that be another anointing? Maybe a prayer line? Maybe a camp meeting? Maybe my wife this? Maybe my husband that? Maybe my children resent me? Maybe, 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 maybe. With Calvary, there's no maybe. It is finished. Finished. Done. Accepted. Paid in full. Pardoned. Sealed and delivered. You take it as God offers it. Why do you make life so hard for yourself? It's the remnant of the Catholic teaching. I'm telling you, that's what it is. It's the remnant of the Catholic church dogmas infiltrated through church ages that some people still hold and they think that they still have a little tiny bit to do. They claim that, oh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. They can sing it, but in their mind, in how they view God, like I said in the beginning, it's true through the tainted lenses of the law. To them, it's still, if you do this, I will do that. If you live right, I will heal you. If you do this, if you pray right, if you're diligent, if you read your Bible daily, if you listen to five tips in a week, then you can come with me with assurance that I'm going to give it to you because you meet requirements. That's not God. When God shifts his attention away from Calvary to you, it's death. Because you have no business having a one-on-one with God without the blood. It's death. It should always be about Calvary. Always about Calvary. Let's stand. Now, it has nothing to do with how much I come in. 
through no other way, no matter how much church you belong to, how good of a man you are, how good of a woman you are, you must accept God. All sufficient sacrifice. He's provided a way or you're lost. That's the only way that you can come in through through that sacrifice. That's all sufficient. God as a force projected love to you and he displaced you. He put you in motion and he changed you from what you used to be to what you are now. Why? Because divine love agape was projected to you and you are the object of his love. Just like Adam stepped out of eternity to take Eve and the sacrifice, the selfless giving of Adam made God come on the scene and provide in return a lamb for both of them. That's what Christ did for you. Calvary, I don't have time to go into this, but Calvary is such a consequential event because without Calvary, there's no seals. Do you know that? Without Calvary, there's no seals. Without Calvary, there's no opening of the seals. Without Calvary, there's no title deed. Without Calvary, you can never go back to, Adam, to what Adam and Eve lost. Without Calvary, you have no access to your eternal theophany body. Without Calvary, there's no body change. Without Calvary, there's no rapture for you. Calvary did all of that. So Calvary is all sufficient. Calvary in one act of selfless giving satisfies all the plan of redemption because of Calvary. You don't need anything else than that. Now, how many have a need tonight? How many perhaps say, show of hands, how many have, have perhaps a need for healing, for something? Maybe, I know Gabe, you have a shoulder issue. I don't know what your needs are. But whatever your need is, whether it's arthritis, keep your hands up. I want to talk to you for a moment. What is arthritis? Christ paid for that. And if God did not spare him, that means that sin, that sickness was judged then and condemned. And he has no power over you. Now, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? I'm asking you, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you that Christ died so that you can be healed? Is that enough for you? Then tell me why you shouldn't walk from this place healed. Now in your mind you're going, what what? What if I sin? Put it under the blood. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. And that's enough. Or what if this is a trial? Or what if I did something wrong? What if There's no what if. Christ paid it for you. Over and over again, I'm so amazed. Every prayer line, how is it so simple? And then we hide behind the fact, well, he was a prophet. It's true, he was a prophet. But the people that were getting healed were getting healed on the basis of Calvary and their faith in that redemptive work. Don't make it too complicated. Amen. Is that enough for you? And I said, go home free. Go home healed. The blood that Jesus shed for me. Go home healed. Do you have sins that need to be forgiven? Amen. Do you think that Christ died and that's enough to forgive your sins? Amen. Then your sins are forgiven. Amen. Go home free. Amen. Don't revisit it. Amen. Don't ask yourself two days from today, am I really forgiven? Amen. Why wouldn't you be really forgiven? Did Christ really die? Then you're really forgiven. Brother says that if the, the word wash, washing by the water of the word, it says the Greek word is loose. And he said, if the loosing is, if the blood is perfect, was it? Then the loosing is perfect. I rely on him tonight. I rely on him tonight. It's such a, it's such a, I don't even know how how to say this correctly, but it's such an insult to the devil. When he sees that in spite of all my insufficiency, I still walk with the Lord and he still loves me. It's like the hatred just rises up in him. I hate this guy. I hate him. I got cast out of heaven. Uh, yeah, but you didn't repent. I repent. 
I have faith in the blood and I can walk. And if Satan wants to remind him of my sins, I'll say, okay, Satan, go ahead. What else did I do? I sinned? What else did I do? I lied? Yeah, yeah, I did. What did I do? I smoked? Okay, yeah, I did that. What, what else did I do? I did this? Yeah, but you know what? Isn't it incredible he still loves me? Isn't it incredible that I still make it to heaven in spite of that because of him? I tell you what, the devil will, will not hang around you no more. If he began to rely on Calvary for everything, you're not a good person for him to hang around. But I want to say that if Satan is going to inflict me with sickness, hang around Satan, you're going to hear me testify every day. And you're going to get tired of hearing me say, I am healed, I am healed. Thank you for Calvary, I am healed. I am saved. Thank you for Calvary, I'm forgiven. He will get tired and flee. The blood. Let's sing. All sufficient. The blood that Like this song, should have another verse. <laughs> oh, it's such a beautiful song. It soothes my doubts. Amen. When you have doubts about whether you, you should get access to something from God or not, when you have doubts about it, look at Calvary. Yeah. It soothes all your doubts. Yeah. When you fear, will I make it? Will I not make it? Will I be healed? Will it work? Will God answer me? Will it not? Will my children be saved or not? It calms all your fears. When you cry over all your sins, Lord, I repent, I repent, and God has forgiven you, and you cry again, I repent, I'm sorry for that. He dries all your tears. Look back to Calvary. That's all sufficient work. 
I want you to go back home knowing that this year, and that's the reason why I wanted to bring this message, because I want this to be your attitude for 2024. My position is because of Calvary. All that I have is because of Calvary. Who I am is because of Calvary. My rapture is because of Calvary. My new body is because of Calvary. Let's not get to clap in all the mystery of the thunders and everything. This is what the seals are all about. The redemptive work of God. How you purchase your, 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 your rights back through Calvary. He's all sufficient. The Lamb of God is sufficient for me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, you just want to take a little bit of time this evening, Lord. As a first service of 2024. Lord, we understand that you're an eternal creature. You're not bound by time. But we are in time, Lord. And we, we have a calendar year. Start our calendar in January to December. This is how we understand the world around us. And contextualize events and times and seasons. But I pray in this calendar year of 2024, Lord. If last year we did things or we relied too much upon our own merits. Maybe we looked in our own strength. Maybe we approach you thinking that we, we are worthy of receiving anything because of our faith. Lord, we want to look to you tonight and say, Lord, we repent from that. Because looking in us, ourselves and our own strength is looking away from you. But we want to look to Calvary tonight, Lord. We want to say, Father, it is finished. I believe in the all-sufficient work of the cross. I believe that because God did not spare his own son, I can be spared. I believe that my sins can be forgiven. I believe that as east, as far as east from the west, you've taken all my sins away from me. I believe that I have access to liberty in Christ on the merits of Calvary itself. And all you require of me, Lord, is to believe that that sacrifice was enough. And I say, Lord, and I confess it from my lips, it is enough. Calvary is enough for me. For my healing, it is enough. For my salvation, it is enough. For my victories, it is enough. For my walk with God, it is enough. For a consecrated life, it is enough. For my family, the Lamb of God is enough for me. One Lamb for each family. Thank you, Father, for your profit in these last days, Lord. Bring us back to the atonement, Lord. The word of the hour, the bleeding word. In our midst, Lord, that forgives sin, that loses and I know, Father, that the blood of Christ was perfect. Therefore, our loosing is perfect. And we thank you for it, Lord. Take away from our mind any carnal understanding. Lord, any Catholic dogma, Lord. Any madman ideas, Lord. Anything that brings us to rely even a tiny little bit on ourselves or on another man. The Bible says, curses the man that leans on the arm of man. Lean not unto your own understanding. Lord, we lean on you all alone. But with your people tonight, Lord, I pray for anyone who is sick, Calvary is enough. Amen. For anyone who needs healing, Lord, Amen. may Calvary be enough. May faith rise up in them that that is enough. And may they go back home whole. But if there be any sinner tonight here, don't let the devil tell them it's so complicated. That it takes praying for hours and hours. That it takes beating down the altar. That it takes tears and tears and tears, Lord. But may they come and accept the simplicity that Christ died for them and accept that he died not only for them, but instead of them. And then the punishment that they deserve was paid in full. Therefore, they can walk free 
by the grace of God. For by faith, I will say through grace. But we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. We bless you. We pray that you bless us here, Lord. As a church, Lord, take us higher, Lord. Make your word more potent, Lord. Open up your word even more, Lord. Bring us into a closer consecration with you this year, Lord. I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can you can you say you're all dismissed. But if you don't mind playing the, I think there's a song. I can't remember. I think it's dancing is my soul. I think isn't there a verse about God not his his son not sparing? Something like that? Can you, can you can you put that verse for me on the screen and you can play that song? I love these words. Son not sparing. Beyond Smith. Thank you to God.